My name is Derek Smith, and this is the Truth or Derek Show, or the Truth or Derek Podcast, whatever you want to call it. I wanted to thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we have an awesome, awesome guest later on. He is America's attorney. His name is Joshua Schiffer, or at Lawyer Schiff on Twitter. He is the host of the Afternoon Drive on Court TV, uh, co-host on the Afternoon Drive on Court TV between 3 and 6 p.m., Covering all the daily news, legal news, trial stuff, and all that sort of thing. But there's a lot more to him than that. You guys are going to love this interview because he is not only a defense attorney, he is a hip-hop aficionado, I guess somewhat of a celebrity now. Um, he's a cat person. The guy, he just he does it all. So we're going to have a blast uh, talking with him. But in the meantime, we always have a lot to cover. You know, um, we talk about fun. <laughs> I'm promising you fun. Fun, true crime, we do... Oh, sorry, fun, comma, true crime, not fun, true crime. Fun and true crime. Uh, Food, music, current events, news, uh, not so much politics, because that's not really my bag. Not really smart enough to follow that, but the rest of it, I promise you, we're going to do a bang-up job, but before we get to any of that, obviously, you know, we have to pay some bills around here. This podcasting stuff isn't free, so... Today's show is brought to you by www.podstars.net. Podstars is a talented and passionate community that will give you the opportunity to interview top professionals from a variety of industries, where they will share their insights and experiences with your audience. Plus, everyone will have access to the exclusive celebrity catalog featuring some of the best in the business, both new and established. Podstars is also free to join. As a member of Podstars, you can choose from the catalog of celebrities to interview on your podcast. If interested, for an additional monthly fee of only $8.99 a month, you can upgrade to the Community Plan, a completely different and exciting catalog full of some of the best experts and professionals in their fields today, as well as access to everybody in the whole Podstars universe. It is a great way to invest in your podcast as you will save time and money by being able to book guests from one platform with an expansive catalog that is always being added to. So why wait? Join www.podstars.net now and start exploring all that they have to offer. You will not want to miss out on this amazing opportunity to elevate your podcasting career. Yes, so www.podstars.net. As some of you know or may not know, I actually work for them, work with them, whatever you want to do. I do stuff with podstars.net. Um... And it's been a lot of fun over the last, uh, I guess, year and a half, maybe almost coming up on two years. I know Jay, uh, the owner or the the creator, the visionary, uh, came to me with the idea of, maybe, I don't know, 18, say 20 months ago and uh, walked me through the whole thing. And I'm somewhat familiar with podcasting. I mean, I really didn't realize how, uh, how vast the world of podcasting was until I started doing some research and getting involved. But uh, yeah, no, definitely. It has been a lot of fun. A lot of stories. Uh, I know in the beginning, 
uh, we put out, I want to say, just under 25,000 feelers to different uh, agents, celebrities, musicians, just you name it. Pretty much anybody that would be a cool guest on a podcast, we reached out to them. And, uh, you know, <laughs> we got some a lot of positive feedback, a little bit of negative feedback. You know, it's like uh, the great Mark Zuckerberg uh, said, uh, you can't make all these friends without making a few enemies. And I know at our first Comic-Con, I definitely made <laughs> one enemy, but... We'll talk about that down the road a bit, but I'll give you a hint. He rides a motorcycle on a television show. <laughs> uh, yeah, so lots of uh, talent and Comic-Con stories I'll do for another episode, just because I have so much I want to get through today, <clears throat> and we also got to get uh, to the shift. But um, at our first Comic-Con, really, I'll just tell one Comic-Con story. At our first Comic-Con, we got there, and... Uh, Niagara Falls, and after we set up and all that, so I popped outside for a cigarette. Uh, you know, not the best habit, but probably not my worst. Um, and, you know, there was this English guy out there just, you know, shooting the breeze with him and all that sort of thing. And, you know, small talk, weather, traffic, you know, whatever, just nonsense that you talk to people about. And then, you know, went our separate ways. I popped out, you know, an hour later, as nicotine has the magic of doing. And uh, he was there again, so we just started talking a bit. And this went on, you know, two or three times. And then uh, the one time I went out with uh, uh, Jim, another guy that works with us at Podstars. And, and after we were talking to him, when we went in, he was like, do you know who that was? And I was like, no. He goes, that's Simon Wright. He said he's the drummer for ACDC. And it was weird. I had no idea. Uh, because I even when I ended up talking with, again, Simon later on, he said... Uh, you know they didn't uh, they didn't promote really that he was going to be there and when i was looking at the flyer ahead of time he was on it but it was like a small picture so i don't know i was a little bit starstruck and uh, afterwards when i finally figured out who he was we started telling some uh, some rock and roll stories it just the guy is absolutely unbelievable just and down to earth cuz like he was telling us the one story i don't i don't know if it was the last time he came to toronto or if it was this time he's like you know the flight was oversold so they jammed him in like the middle seat <laughs> it's like a baby kept throwing up on him. And then, you know, we were joking. We'd be like, you know, don't you just want to grab the flight attendant and say, listen to me, I'm with ACDC. I make more in a day than you do in six months. So I want a better seat. I want it right now. And he's like, no, no, mate. Uh, you know, it's all good. I, I'm, I'm sorry about the English accent there. I won't do that again. An unbelievable guy. He did tell me, I mean, I have a terrible memory. I should have written some of this down, but he did tell me a cool story that stuck out. Um, they were doing a show somewhere in Europe, and uh, they had like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, all sold out sort of thing. So they went out there and did their thing, and it was great. And uh, after afterwards on the Sunday, the uh, the promoter said, you know, I want to add a Monday show. I'll pay you this much, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, yeah, fine. We're here till Wednesday anyways. Why not? So he said Monday, you know, they showed up at the show and all that sort of thing. They did their thing backstage. They went out there, and when they opened the curtains, there was only three people. The uh, the promoter must mess something up and all that, and could, they couldn't sell any tickets or whatever it was, but nobody knew about it. So he goes, yeah, you know, we, we played a show, and there was only three people in the audience. I thought to myself, what an amazing story for those people to tell, because um, that is a small venue indeed. But uh, I would definitely recommend, if uh, any at any Comic-Cons or any of these rock conventions or anything, if you do get a chance to to meet Simon Wright, without question, do it. Because, uh, again, I'm just the cool guy. And even when you saw him talking to people in line, even there was a few other people, he'd spend, you know, 10, 15 minutes with them because uh, 
a lot of people don't. Uh, we see again. We'll get into that a little bit down the road. I know um, my wife years ago bought me a meet and greet with Joe Montana, who was like my childhood hero. And uh, it, you know, it just I had a, a helmet to get signed, and I got in line. I was like the tiniest bit tongue tied, but I ended up, you know, hi, Mister Montana, how are you? And then you could see like the the dinguses wearing the suits and all that were like shuffling me through. And even though there was a lot of people there, but it was like, you know, I, I don't remember what it cost my wife, but it wasn't cheap. <laughs> and yeah, they just kind of shuffled you through. So again, I love Joe Montana. I love Simon Wright, but uh, I definitely had a better time talking with Mr. Wright. There was one funny part though. And again, with how funny down to earth the guy is, uh, Jay, the guy who owns pod stars, diehard ACDC fan. Like my entire life, even when I met him when he was a teenager, you could ask him what his favorite band was. He'd be like ACDC all day long. So the whole time that we were just doing this or popping out or walking by his desk or he was walking by ours and waving and all that, James just wasn't there. He was just doing something else or talking to somebody else or, you know, went out to the car for something. So I just, I really wanted to at some point just pull Mr. Wright aside and just say, you know, this is Jay. He's a huge fan. Maybe get an autograph or a picture or whatever. But it just, the chance never came. So like, this Sunday afternoon, we were trying to do it. Uh, Simon Wright walks by and just waves at me and kind of gives me like the sign to go outside and have a cigarette. And Jay yells at him, you've got to be kidding me. He doesn't even like ACDC. <laughs> it's just funny that now the drummer from ACDC knows that I don't like ACDC. <laughs> Which is actually not that far from the truth. I think it's one of those, I don't know. People think A lot of people think I'm crazy, but. It was like that, like the Rolling Stones, just kind of the same eight to ten songs over and over again. And I don't know, maybe when I was younger, it was like my dad and my uncle and all that thing was just like really drilled into me. And it's just, you know, there wasn't much changing over the years. Like still, the Rolling Stones play stuff from the 70s and the 80s, where if you have like, I've always loved Elton John, you know, and even if you look at him now, I mean, every song is a hit and. The guy's still working with new artists. He still works with remixes. He still does live appearances. They're a little bit different. I mean, if you want to hear a Dynamite uh, Elton John performance, uh, go on YouTube. He was uh, he did Piano Man with Billy Joel on the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. I don't. It was a while ago, but it was just stuff like that, like mixing it up with other artists and stuff that like a lot of the a lot of these older rock and roll folk don't do. So. You know, just, uh, I mean, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. Cause, uh, when, <laughs> outside of having that drilled into me, when I was younger, I was like, uh, in my teenage years, I was an aspiring DJ. So I was like listening to house music and drum and bass and Rotterdam and Garage and that sort of thing. Like, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't hear about the Smashing Pumpkins until like 2005, which uh, it's funny now when I, you know, I have people over and all that. I'll say like, have you heard this song by Korn? And they're like, yeah, that song came out in 2007. <laughs> But yeah, um, I, I, Rebecca, my wife bought me one of these uh, books of thousand and one things to do before you die, and one of them was like recordings to listen to, and I think that's how I came across the Pumpkins thing because I now I, with uh, Alexa you can listen to that album they have with the blue cover, uh, Melancholy something or other, and you can listen to that front to back, and it's a dynamite album. But then there's a lot like um, Billy Talent, Corn, like I just said, uh, Disturbed, love that. Although that being said, so I don't sound. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. What are the top five songs in the country right now? Uh, number six is Billie Eilish. I've actually listened to the best of that and uh, wasn't quite sure. Uh, number five, Calm Down by J. Cole and Rima. I'm not sure what that is. 
uh, All My Life by Little Dirk. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, number three, Flowers by Miley Cyrus. I have never in my life heard a song played more than that. And I almost liked it when I first heard it, but now it's like every single time you're walking around or you walk down the street or into a store or down a hallway, it's that song. It's just, it's one of those songs I've never heard front to back because I wouldn't listen to it or I wouldn't download it, but I know all the words. Number two, Karma by Taylor Swift. Oh, Taylor Swift. <laughs> it's funny, I've actually, I've, I've again, I'm, I'm a man in my 40s, so I don't think I'm in her demographic. That being said, that song she has, uh, Antihero, another one of those songs that just gets jammed in your head. And that one I actually did download. It was actually, uh, there was a funny story. One of, the, one of the girls that works for us, we had to go downtown for a meeting. That Antihero came on right when we were pulling into the underground. So uh, just like the first two seconds, so when we got in the elevator, she was kind of humming it. And, uh, you know, I just kind of started, uh, I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. It must be exhausting, always rooting for the antihero. And uh, not realizing it, that it stopped on a, a floor in between. And this woman got on, probably in her 30s, with a huge smile on her face. And she just looks at us both in like a foot away. She goes, are you guys Swifties? <laughs> so uh, I said, yeah, I guess we are. So then she started singing it too. So we just started humming it. It was this really weird elevator ride up to the top. And when we got off, we just much looked like a bunch of lunatics. It was pretty funny. So uh, yeah, number two is uh, Taylor Swift. Number one is uh, Last Night by Morgan Wallen. I, I couldn't pick that song out of a lineup, to be honest with you. I do know he definitely has something going on, though, because uh, one, one of the other girls that works here, they were trying to get tickets to one of his shows, and it was like, I think it was like three or $400, and those weren't even for like the, the, the first 30 rows, which, uh, you know, for three or $400, uh, you'd kind of like to be a, a little bit closer to the stage, but I guess that is your, um, I guess that is your prerogative. If you have a $400 burning a hole in your pocket, you can go see Morgan Wallen really far away. <laughs> If you look at the the evolution of entertainment, well, at first it starts off with conversation, and then there was radio, and then records, and then tapes, CDs, MP3s, uh, downloading videos, and watching movies in the car, which they've made illegal, along with texting, which uh, I really tried to stop doing. I can't believe that that was even legal for a little while, but um, then podcasting. So part of the whole working with Podstars thing, I learned that there is over 3 million podcasts and over 100 million episodes out there to download, which is actually really cool because there'd be certain things that uh, you might hear people touch on this. You might listen to uh, a different show or, or something like that where, you know, trivia or whatever it is where, where they just touch on stuff. But now it's like there's a niche market where you can go get exactly what you want. A little bit before the Podstars thing. I mean, I, I had listened to a few, like a lot of true crime stuff and things of that nature. But uh, I have a Bernie's Mountain Dog, rain or shine, winter or summer. Anytime uh, we get off work early or we have a day off, we always go to the dog park. We do like, it's usually between eight and 9,000 steps, which, again, I'm a bigger guy, so I'm very proud. Every time I tell somebody I got 9,000 steps, they go, well, I got 16,000 steps. Well, you know what? Good for you. Good for your 16,000 steps. But I can tell you right now, in between my last dog dying and this one, I had some very sedentary days at home where if I had a step counter on, it would be like, 160, just enough trips to the, the bathroom and the refrigerator in 12 hours. Yeah, I get my, my dog walk on, and 
we were talking podcasts one time with one of the uh, with one of the other guys, and he goes, uh, "Yeah, he goes, there's a music podcast I listen to," and I was like, "Oh yeah, right on, you know, what's the deal?" He's like, "Yeah, you know, they just uh, they <laughs> they talk a lot about Sam Roberts," and I thought, okay, you know, Sam Roberts is not bad, I guess. I, I just I. I I'm not a huge fan of that, but again, maybe they're like the pumpkins. I just, I missed the boat. So I just talking to him about it. He goes, yeah, you know, uh, they just, they tell this and they have, you know, people write in with stories from different cities they've been to and all that sort of thing. And, and I was like, oh yeah, he goes, yeah, I've been listening for a long time. He goes, I'm on like season seven, like episode 135. <laughs> and I just thought like, Wow. You know, like the beauty of podcasting is that there's, you know, assuming they're roughly an hour each, there's almost 140 hours of Sam Roberts stories waiting there for you. It did it actually remind me, though, years ago, uh, I worked at a different company, though. One of the construction managers came in on a Monday. He's like a really clean cut, like normal guy. And his side of his face is just swollen all to hell. And uh, he had a black eye. And we were like, Pete, what the hell happened? He goes, Oh, you know, I, I, uh, the wife and I went to a concert last night, and I just uh, hopped into the mosh pad for a, a mosh pit for a minute, and somebody whacked me in the in the side of the head. And we were like, "What concert was it?" Sure enough, it was Sam Roberts. So yes, this is the Sam Roberts Hour on the Truth or Derek Show. Uh, I'll have to get the name of that podcast because I, I don't want to talk trash about it because I've never heard it, but I'm definitely going to uh, going to educate myself on that because apparently there's a lot of buzz going around the uh the Sam Roberts world. So, yes, that is one. The Sam Ro- <laughs> The Sam Roberts show is one of over 3 million podcasts out there. Hopefully maybe I could land maybe in the top. I don't know where I'd be happy in there. You got to fig- you'd want to be in the top 10%. So, if I can get in the top 300,000 would be 10%. I didn't write this down. I'm trying to do the math in my head. Or 1% would be 30,000. I want to be in the top 10,000. I would be happy. So, Tell your friend, just shoot me a download. You don't have to listen to it. Maybe you hate the show or you hate the sound of my voice or, or you like the guest. I'm trying, I got some really good guests on because, again, throughout this whole um, Podstars thing with the people that I've been able to meet, that's what I was saying earlier when we're going to – the show's a bit of a potpourri category, like in uh, Jeopardy. It'll just be a mixed bag every week. But we want to touch on everything, especially uh, a lot of true crime stuff. Like uh, we have uh, Dr. Laura Petler. Uh, she runs the number one uh, homicide investigation company in the U.S., so she's got stories for days. Uh, Cheryl McCollum, another one. She just uh, launched a podcast of her own, and it is absolutely stunning. It's called Zone 7. Go check that out. But uh, I actually got to talk to her on the phone for two or three hours, and she was telling me some amazing stories. And a lot of the stuff they do for charity and stuff where the you can bid on it, you can actually go work an active cold case with them, which was super cool. And I've actually had the opportunity a few times to talk to the former assistant director of the FBI, Frank Figluzzi. But he won't be able to come on for a little while because he is working on a second book. He is very serious. So uh, it, what he says goes because he was in charge of the FBI. And that's the, that's the way it is because Frank Figluzzi said so. The top five podcasts right now, The Ben Shapiro Show, I am not familiar with it. Uh, this American Life, also not familiar. The Daily I've heard, and I've also heard snippets of it. It's actually pretty impressive that uh, they can actually put a podcast out every day. A show like that, like it's got an like, insane amount of production and all that sort of thing. That's what I was going to say. Number two, uh, Crime Junkie, incredibly well produced. Like you know, if you listen to some of these shows, like me, I'm just sitting in the stew in the basement, 
with my little uh, sound card here just rattling off. But you hear some of these other ones with clips and this and that and facts and all that and, like, how quickly it goes. Like, reading this morning's news in the afternoon, to me, is amazing if you're not on television. Like, we did get uh, – we do have a news block. I don't think I'll be able to get to it today, but it, <laughs> it's like news from three weeks ago. I'll just pick the biggest news and talk about it because I don't know how long it's going to be between recording and uh, release especially if I have to edit it, but we will get to the bottom of that. Yeah, so the number one podcast out in the world is Joe Rogan. I was actually pretty familiar with Joe Rogan in the 90s, I want to say, because I loved, uh, he was on a sitcom called News Radio, and he was actually hilarious in it. I know along along those uh, days, he used to do a lot of stand-up comedy, too, that was actually good. I know afterwards he got, uh, he was involved with MMA, and obviously now he's the king of podcasting, but uh yeah, uh, I've never really listened to his show. I would be curious uh, to see if anyone knows that he's talked about working on news radio because I know him and Phil Hartman were close just from different stories. And I've actually met Dave Foley, who was on that. News radio was a fantastic show. Uh, Stephen Root, Andy Dick, uh, Dave Foley, Joe Rogan, Condi Alexander. I know the guy who voiced who voices uh, Joe and Family Guy, Patrick Warburton, was in the last season. Yeah, Joe Rogan and Phil Hartman, I, I remember hearing were close uh, when Phil Hartman was murdered by his wife in between uh, the fourth and fifth season. So that's an uh, interesting uh, little true crime tidbit, but definitely would like to follow up on that. But just a lot of true crime stuff in general. You see, a lot of people have like this, like it's a macabre. I know my wife enjoys some of it and other stuff, but for me, I would say outside of people that just kill for no reason. A lot of these episodes and a lot of these other things that you see, there's a lesson to be learned from it. And what I mean from that is, if you watch the show from start to finish, is how some of these people uh, end up in some of these situations. I mean, we're going to have like a, a really specific, where we don't <laughs> talk about the Sam Roberts show, where we talk a little bit more true crime specific, a little bit down the road when I have a guest that is more like an investigator. Because if anybody, they, they just, they re-released... Um, unsolved mysteries on netflix the original ones but also there's three or four seasons of new ones more recent cases and there's a couple there that are like i don't know it's just you see a lot of them and there's just some of these ones that stick with you and one of the ones was uh a lot of people that know uh or that seen the show or like familiar with uh popular missing persons cases or murders was uh alonzo brooks really fishy story i'll, I'll get into it again i'll get my facts together and i'll get into it but essentially alonzo brooks He's a African American kid. He's got. He lives in a predominantly white neighborhood. I'm guessing, or they went to a party that was in a predominantly white party. With, with eventually, turns out it was a lot of juiced in kids, like either politicians' kids or cops' kids, or this, that, and the other thing. Right away, and again, I've watched this and talked about it. I know from experience, and I know that even my parents, when I was a little kid, would say, "You do not go to a party with people that you don't know alone ever, under any circumstances." And under any circumstances, you never leave a person at a party that you've went. And even that, if it's like, even if he's being a drunk or he's being a pain in the ass, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure we've all done that. We've all <laughs> gone to a party with someone who's being a drunk pain in the ass or been somebody being a drunk pain in the ass at a party. doesn't matter. The rule is there is safety in numbers and there's nothing more true than that. So, again, the lesson that you learn from this and, like, they interviewed the, one of the guys that left him at the party. and. I can't for the life of me figure out why the guy would even do the interview because, um, I mean, for me, I mean, I'm assuming he did it for money, but uh, for me, I, I would never get another night's sleep if I knew that uh, my friend was being a drunken jackass at a party and I took off. 
And then the guy ended up dead like shortly after. Uh, but you know what? Like, there's a lot more to the story than that. And we'll get into it. But uh, when they were interviewing the friend, he was like, oh, you know, I ran out of cigarettes. So I went out and I got in the car and then I took a wrong turn down the street. And just uh, the whole thing, again, I'll go through it. The facts, the same as like one of the other ones that stuck out with me. And I, I can't wait to talk to uh, some of the, the homicide investigators about this is the um, the case of Tiffany Valiante. Now, uh, again, if you're familiar with this case, it, it seems odd. She's at a she's at a party. There was a little bit of a she had an issue with her girlfriend. There was a little bit of a scuffle beforehand. So again, uh, <laughs> learning lessons on the Truth or Derek show. And I actually I had this written in my notes when I was just uh, talking about true crime in general. Uh, how some of these situations usually add with somebody who might want to run away, or you know, someone who's just going through some stuff, that sort of thing. It's so important. And again, we're not going to drill into mental health and all that, but. You can usually tell if somebody's going through a bad time or somebody's, uh, you know, I, I had a breakup or uh, got fired or just going through something in their life where you can tell, like, they're out of the normal. It's always good to hold that person a little bit closer, you know, shoot them a text, take them out for food, take them out for a drink. Just, again, I've read through thousands. If there, There's actually, there's a, a database of uh, a lot of the cases that were on Unsolved Mysteries. And you wouldn't believe how many people, like, accidentally end up in like weird situations some of the like my wife brought it up and they actually the they talked about it in that movie the girl with the dragon tattoo when uh daniel craig knows something's going on (laughs) i don't want to spoil the movie in case you haven't seen it it's a good movie but uh when he's talking with one of the other guys and he's like you knew there was something off about me you had a feeling in your throat but you came in anyways because you didn't want to offend me and that was one of uh, Rebecca's things that she's always said. Like she knew that from when she was younger. It's like if if somebody's out there being creepy or being weird and all that, you know, trying not to offend them for whatever reason, like that little that gut feeling that you have in your stomach, you have to follow it because you know what? If you don't know the person, they're a stranger. Then who gives a shit what they think about you? But you know, like uh, Silence of the Lambs. Okay, I, there's no way I could spoil this. Everyone's seen it. When the weird guy with the cast is like, "Could you grab the other side and put it in the back of the truck?" A lot of people would actually help him, where just scream, whatever, to make noise, uh, dial 911 on your phone, and just get out. As soon as you get that little feeling in the pit of your stomach that something's going wrong, get out. It doesn't matter whatever the circumstances. Call 911. That's, that's what they're there for. Even if it's not an emergency, believe me, it's just, you hear the weirdest things. Like uh, There was one story about a little girl who uh, got into a fight with her brother or sister, and then she, I think she was only 8 or 10. I, I want to say it was in Maryland. Uh, and then hopped out her window and like ran not far, like a half a mile down an embankment beside a highway. And I went to cut through uh, a forest and she actually ran into a serial killer by accident. And unfortunately she was killed. And again, just one of these stupid, weird scenarios where, you know, with the population in the world, the way it is today, it's just like this stuff happens for no reason as a parent or as a friend or as a brother or sister or whatever it is. If, uh, you know, be peaceful. Let's all be happy. Let's just keep everybody happy and safe. Sorry, go back to what I was saying about the Tiffany Valiante case. She, uh, there, there was a party, again, I promise you, I'll get my facts together when we go through this, so I can just tell you what the case, but I just wanted to touch on it now because it's fascinating that they have our video, uh, or a, a video of her leaving her house, and then uh, she was found dead on the train tracks, Two miles away, I want to say. For some reason, transit police find the body and they just say, you know, it's a suicide. 
And then from there, the case just gets weirder and weirder and weirder because uh, they found out that she was barefoot. They found her shoes almost near her house. And anybody who knows, if you've walked or ridden along train tracks, you can't walk barefoot on the side of train tracks. It's impossible. And then the conductors had conflicting stories. And then uh, they didn't secure the crime scene. And uh, even, like, it was horrifying. The family was still finding uh, parts of her days later. And then they actually, the family was doing the search and found a bunch. It's just, it was one of the weirdest stories. So we'll definitely touch touch on that uh, down the road. See what uh, some of our investigating people can do. Again, if you, had a, if you do have a, a show and you want to get some of these people, head on over to www net because uh, they really do have some amazing stuff over there. They also, uh, they uh, they signed a guy who was a financial expert, which I thought was really interesting because I always thought it was one of those, we have another friend of ours that we walk with at our dog park that uh, he is a, he's a trader. He's a professional trader. I actually have a few friends. I have one of them is like, like he'll give you, <laughs> I, I, I want to take his advice because the guy is insanely successful, but he's one of those guys with the ups and downs. So, you know, we'll see him at the end of the, and at the end of the summer, he goes, oh, you know what? It's strong. I just got the dividends, blah, blah, blah. You know, I made 350,000. He's not a bragger either. He just, he's a numbers guy. It'd be like, I made 350,000. And then, you know, we always reach out and hang out or stop by for a drink and meet up with people around Christmas time. And then, he usually dives in January, so we'll see him in January. Be like, God damn it, I'm down a half a million, but uh, you know this and that uh, that's on the rise and everything. And I was thinking, a, a half a million dollars lost plus three hundred and fifty thousand made is still minus a hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah, so never, I've never actually taken any of his advice. But uh, I get the other guy. It's difficult because uh, a lot of people don't realize the stock market is like gambling. We came into some, I wouldn't want to say found money years ago, but uh, uh, two or three years ago, we just, I don't know, we had some extras. So Rebecca and I uh, uh, were looking through some stocks, and of course, I, I read something that said Nokia was on the upswing. You guys remember those flip phones from the 90s? Yes, I own stock in that. <laughs> uh, and she came across a couple uh, of different ones. She bought some medical stock that tanked, but uh, she bought Maxar, which is kind of like space technology and it went up and it went through the roof, but they um uh, they sold or they do whatever they do where you, they just have to give you your money back and then some. Like they don't transfer it to another stock or whatever, which was a bummer. So now we have some of this extra money. Uh, again, not extra money. It's just sort of found money that we want to maybe buy another stock with. But you talk to everybody and uh, everybody's got a different uh, idea or thoughts about where is this and what's on the up and what's on the down when – I remember years ago, there was a guy, does anybody remember Jim Cramer? I had seen the show a few times, and then I was trying to see if he was on uh, on Twitter or on any socials or on Facebook, or see if he even still had a show, to see if you can get some advice from him, but uh, <laughs> I had forgotten how crazy that show was, because again, if anybody saw it, he'd be like, you guys gotta go out, you gotta go out and buy Black & Decker, because if Black & Decker is gonna be there when the housing prices go down in storage, storage, you gotta go out and buy storage. The new guy that they put in charge of Westinghouse, the guy they put in charge of Westinghouse doesn't seem like a WWE, so you gotta go out and buy that stock. Buy low, sell high, buy low, sell high. <laughs> so yeah, maybe that wasn't my best advice to go through, uh, Jim Cramer, but I would love to see what he's up to now and just, uh, I don't know. Again, if you want to make enemies with people, uh, share gambling tips or stock advice.
but I can actually give you guys some gambling tips. Probably more when around football or basketball rolls around because uh, we've been on a bit of a roll with that lately. Now, <clears throat> I wanted to get to the mailbag because I got all your questions about Netflix and Tom Brady and food. Uh, I have all of that, but unfortunately, we are out of time for the regular show today. We really have to get to our interview. So, ladies and gentlemen, the great Joshua Schiffer. It's fine. <laughs> Well, my next guest needs no introduction. He is all over Court TV, uh, usually covering live trials and news. Uh, he is a fantastic defense attorney. Uh, he is a cat wrangler, and he's also a bit of a hip-hop aficionado. Let's everybody welcome America's lawyer, Joshua Schiffer, to the show. Hey, thank you so much for the invitation. And uh, for those of you that, that can't see what's going on, we're also joined by a member of the Justice Kitty Army. That, uh, that that heard this was cranking up, and as soon as Derek said record, the cat magically appeared. Yeah, uh, and like I was saying to you the other day, they usually know just those buttons to hit where when you try to turn the computer on and you're trying to do something important, you're like, oh, no, oh, no, wait, no, no, that's uh, not working. <laughs> oh, no, she's trying to give you the winker. Come on, you. All right, thank you, Justice King. But thank you so much for having me on, man. You know what a fan I am of what you're doing. I, I love podcasting i have forever since you know some of those really seminal early ones like rome and you know you see what so many great podcasters have done because it's such an intimate way to connect with people and that's really what some of the best entertainment is is it's that really knowing someone get getting off script uh, well so, it really uh, it really is too uh, because you, you can focus on so many uh, you know different little niches of things i mean we talked earlier when i recorded the actual show that I don't know if you're familiar with the band Sam Roberts, but uh, there's a podcast out there where there's like 140 episodes and they just tell what? Sam Roberts stories. So what? as Lee just said, if it's a medium that everyone likes, it's because there really is something for everybody. And it's totally except like, I, I, I really wondered if, if the generation that my parents were going to connect, they fell in love with it. Really? It's amazing. And then even the younger set, just it's, it's on demand. It comes in in a very approachable way. Um, you can have all kinds of different kind of flavors of what kind of podcasting you like. And I, I really think that it, it's going to continue to grow and be the future uh, of how people really consume news and entertainment. Now, when I introduced you, I said that you were a hip-hop aficionado. I would have loved to have played a little bit of uh, <clears throat> a little bit of Wu-Tang or DMX, but that's obviously yeah. licensed music. But I'd be, happy to sing. Uh, I'd be happy to sing a little bit for you if you want I, I, I joke that I'm gonna change X gonna give it to you to shift gonna give it to you. Shift gonna um, give it to you. Yeah, <laughs> ways I, for you to I've, get it I've on your own. Started. Shift gonna deliver to you. <laughs> well, you see, no, you play the rest of the song, and just when it gets to the X, you you take out the X, and it's just a voice going shift, and it's very awkward, but it would be beautiful. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm a giant hip hop fan because I'm the I'm the generation of people that. Uh, when hip hop really started to, to grow in the late 80s, that's man, that's my coming to age. Uh, late 80s, riding the bus, then the early 90s, when uh, the original NWA, when the original guys were coming up, Easy E, when, when Two Live Crew, that, that gangster rap was all starting at the same time as hip hop was very much dominated by the LL Cool J's of the universe and some of that early power rap. 
Uh, and then watching it grow, by the time I got to high school, Ice T was just amazing. Uh, Dr. Dre and the Chronic Cop came killer. out. <laughs> Dude. Because, uh, of course, with your suburban rap, you've got to have some hardcore metal. So you've got to have some Ice T body count to go along with the Megadeth <laughs> and the Metallica and all that. Ice that's Cube how you Wicked was a good one. <laughs> You know, Ice Cube was never the one that resonated with us, and I don't know if that's just because he's so West Coast, but, like, we were really into Dre. Um, we had a lot of iced tea. Atlanta, humorously, was starting up then, but in the burbs, we were just nationally exposed. We didn't have the Atlanta hip-hop that more came of art when I was in college in the late 90s and then law school in the early 2000s. Uh, which have now become favorites. But then when I got to college, it was all about Wu-Tang. I went to college up in New England, so there were tons of New Yorkers, and uh, Wu-Tang was huge. Uh, I, I do say that the number one concert I ever attended, and a, and a good Josh Schiffer trivia question, um, when I was 15, I wasn't even 16 years old, there's this legendary club that's now torn down in Atlanta called The Masquerade, which was an old mill that had been turned into a club and it was decrepit and everybody played there. And I saw Rage Against the Machine open up for House of Pain on House of Pain's big jump around tour. And well, I, I'm assuming they called it the jump around out. tour because that was really the only song they had. Yeah, they yeah, no, like it was, it was, <laughs> and it was fascinating because uh, as we're talking 1992, 90, yeah, 92, 93, it was racist skinheads versus anti-race sharp skinheads versus Irish skinheads <laughs> versus the Rage Against the Machine, which only had like eight people there. And here's suburban kids going out and being like, we love this. And we show up in downtown Atlanta, which could have been another universe as far as we were concerned, <laughs> and watch a rumble. And I'm talking Outer West Side story rumble. Really? But uh, I, I, I did get to see Zach and, and Rage Against the Machine play a teeny club uh, and they and they killed it. Uh, but yeah, I love my rap and hip hop. I ended up professionally working with a number of, of really cool performers uh, on some of their legal issues, and it's it's hilarious. They they crack up when I can quote other songs, and you know I fanboy out for a couple of them. And I, I, <laughs> you know what? And I know that for a fact because obviously, like I follow you on socials and stuff, and I saw that you just like reposted that one of the Yin Yang Twins is, yeah. has a, a solo album coming out. <laughs> D-Rock D uh, has been a friend for a long time. Uh, dude is as cool as the other side of the pillow. Uh, and, uh, man, if you you know hip-hop. And really, one of the cool things about D-Rock is they're not just fundamental Southern Atlanta hip-hop. They're a unique subgroup out of that. And if you read about what D-Rock's doing, there is trap music. There's this kind. There's the, his specialization isn't crunk. That's much more Little John and some of those banging, booming beats, whereas the, the, the Yin Yang Twins are, are twerk music. And it's, it's dance-oriented. And it really is the good time party music as much as anything else. And that's what he's doing with his solo stuff. And Which Kane's going to have an album come out here soon. And uh, it, he's just he's an awesome guy. It's fascinating because, I mean, you know, not that somebody like you would know that, but I'm just saying in general that that, that kind of information is out there, like just however you would come across it, that you being from Atlanta and then, 
you know, going to college and sorry, in Massachusetts that, yeah. you know, that you, and that's the whole thing that I, I kind of hate that I don't want to say he's ruining Twitter, but the whole thing with everybody ah. leaving and stuff like that, it really is an amazing way to connect and get information like that. Because if I wasn't following you, we didn't chat from time to time and stuff. I wouldn't even know that. And now that I do, I'm way more likely to listen to it. I'm way concerned with where Twitter's going and what it looks like we're getting from him. Um, I worry a lot that we are past the, the heyday of Twitter. I think um, so. Much like Facebook. Like, I was, <laughs> thankfully, an early Facebook adopter because I knew a bunch of young people. And, you know, I didn't have a college. <laughs> I was fully an adult, you know, by a good bit of time. But I loved it. And then when Facebook was in still that exploratory growth phase where it was made up the rule, it was so well-intentioned and everybody was like, man, look at this. And we were connecting with people we hadn't seen in years. And I went to this really small international college up in New England. And, uh, and so I had friends all over the world that I haven't talked to in 10, 15, 20 years because they live in Djibouti or, you know. They never would have, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'd never see these people again. I'm so happy that I know where some of my college friends that live in Europe, live in the Middle East, and I get to see their kids, and I get to see their family. And at the time, Facebook was just unreal amazing. And people and post stuff every that. day as opposed to now where it's like once every three oh, months. Yeah. Oh, you used to want to check Facebook by the, by the minute. All the time. Because it was whose birthday and who was like it. And then the sharing of memes, which meme culture, I believe, is one of the most important artistic Love it experiences that we have i yeah. am a massive proponent of communication via meme i believe personally that memes are the most efficient way to convey with deep uh actual understanding of complex subjects yeah it, absolutely. it's stronger than audio it's stronger than, than an oral communication it's stronger than just a purely written uh words it's that combination of words, images, and the inclusion of feelings that you get from the artistic image. And, and it's a you know, people say, that's a joke. It's not art. No, man. That, that picture of Ron Burgundy with the right quote under it that brings you to the right humorous or emotional inflection point. Yeah. That's art, man. Well, that's 100% art. And absolutely, it's like a picture is actually worth a thousand words. But also, yeah. I just talking about hip hop. I think of the one that I saw. It was around COVID. Somebody sent it. It was a uh, Kermit the Frog looking out the window, saying, "I wonder if that bitch ever moved out of Ludacris's way." <laughs> Dude, like, and and it can you can encapsulate things in such a specific perspective. Uh, admittedly, they can fall flat. They can be. You you've got to have the right meme for the right expression. Yeah. But we started using memes in trials uh, about five years really? ago. A, a truly brilliant couple of lawyers from Oklahoma um, a, had done some work on this just, uh, her, just horrific sex case, just awful. And uh, they really didn't have a lot to work with. So they figured they'd start off in Wadair with this big foam board with a whole bunch of crazy memes on it. Really? And because it was, how were they going to talk about this really awful stuff where the guy was innocent? But it was really awful stuff. Um, and, and you need to bring some levity and seriousness, but it's complex stuff. So they had pinned all these images to this phone board, and the prosecutor nutted and was like, you can't do that. And so they're screaming. And none of this is necessarily objectionable. It's not mentioning the case. It's not mentioning the fact. These are memes. 
Yeah. And so the lawyers turn around to the judge and go, all right, judge, all of this is demonstrative. None of this is pretending to be evidence. This is demonstrative. Uh, which, what, what do you have a problem with? And the prosecutor looks at the phone board and picks a picture and points at it. And he goes, well, and this one. And Jim turns around and just yanks it off the phone board and goes, all right, that one's done. <laughs> Next. Are you guys with all of them? Like, are you really going to object? Because how, how, how afraid of pictures from the internet are you? And the lawyer slunk out. And then that really grew. Uh, I've trained and worked with Jim and, and Jackie and a bunch of the people through the Trial Lawyers College. And then we started doing it ourselves. Uh, we tried some interesting ones. And the power of memes in front of a jury, it's unbelievable. Uh, how jurors can connect with it. No kidding. Yeah, see, uh, that what you just said there was one of the questions I was going to ask you afterwards because uh, I actually, I reached out to Franz Borghardt before. Oh, uh, love me some Franz. Oh, uh, so do I. Franz, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Franz, Franz. The octopus, Franz, the octopus so, you, you know, he and I go back a few years. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah, we, I, can, I can swap some fun stories with that man. So he, he was, he was, uh, he just mentioned about the, the trial lawyers college and, um, yeah. Is that something like you were just saying when you'd come out with a, a new technique or a new strategy and the kind of the prosecutor would shoot it down? So like the the kind of a trial would start before the trial to see what techniques you could do and couldn't? Well, and, and techniques, it's an interesting word because the Trial Lawyers College is a toolkit um, that's it's just unlike anything else that other lawyers tend to use and and some of the finest lawyers in the nation tend to gravitate to it. And, and it turned out that a number of us have really gotten into some public commentary, Franz, Vonda Sargent, um, there's a number of us. Um, so what the Trial Lawyers College teaches is psychodramatic, which is a school of psychology uh, tools, uh, reversing roles, changing the way you approach a case from the absolute beginning. Um, and that's a technique that no one can really protect against. Now, what has happened as trial lawyers college, and, and a lot of this stuff comes out of the most famous name attached to is Jerry Spence, who's a now very elderly lawyer who has taught uh, some of the greatest lawyers in the nation. He is one of the greatest lawyers in the nation, and, and he generously made space at his family's ranch uh, for a number of years and, and had a trial lawyers college there that is now there's all kinds of drama with that. But um, <laughs> it was this very small and exclusive group of, of these plaintiffs and criminal defense lawyers, and we worked on these uh, cutting-edge techniques. Uh, and there are motions that opposing counsel have developed specifically to stop specific techniques, such as uh, uh, first-person closes, where you're assuming the role of something and not speaking as a lawyer, but speaking as something else. Um, hmm. And there have been some other very pointed motions to try to prevent lawyers from using certain techniques. Uh, but lawyers generally have been successful in fighting against that. Uh, you're supposed to be able to use all of your wits and skills and yeah. performance in, in court. It's the <clears throat> ultimate in, in real theater. It's theater with, with consequences. Well, yeah, I, I was just going to say consequences because I mean, it, it sounds it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like an insult, but it's like how can you sleep at night? But if you have somebody's you know life ten years, fifteen years, or twenty years hanging in the balance, 
you know, you, you're going to step into court and, and you should be able to use everything in your bag because at the end of the day, you know, if you put in 60% and you know for a fact the guy's innocent and he ends up going to jail, like, that's, that's got to be difficult to deal with. Uh, the emotional issues involved in litigation are a scourge on the practice. And no one is going to tell you that it's healthy or good or well-managed no. um, on, on both sides of criminal. Uh, and that's before we get to civil. And that's before we get into just kind of some of the general, you're a lawyer issues. Lawyers have huge percentages uh, of, of the population that are involved in substance abuse and mental health issues. Right. Uh, stresses are unworldly. And what you're talking about is a stress. Um, it's a motivating stress and it is a hard stress to carry because of the gravity of the work that we do. And I didn't always handle it well. I had a hell of a drinking problem for years. I quit drinking in 2008. Otherwise, I'd be dead. And I know a lot of lawyers have <laughs> a career and drink their way through it. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, there's also a spectrum of service providers. There are way better lawyers and way worse ones. And that's defense and prosecution. Mm -hmm. uh, the number of prosecutors I know that flame out over drug and substance abuse, it's, it's huge. Um, it doesn't make a lot of news because it gets pretty defamatory pretty quick, but there are lots and lots of, of people that, that succumb to substance and, and mental health issues practicing when you're practicing with this kind of gravity. Um, and at, I struggled with it. It was a, the key to our fulcrum for my drinking problem. And here's the quote that I eventually developed, having done an enormous amount of personal work in psychodrama and therapy. And it took a very incredible man by the name of John Nolte, who you can look up if you're into psychodrama. And he's mm -hmm. one of the original psychodramatists, uh, you know, after Dr. Moreno. And we had done a multi-hour personal drama of me about my life and where I was. Really? And I'm lying on the floor in a barn surrounded by people who are all in various emotional states. And I'm acting out a clock with my arms. Like I'm lying on the floor and my arms and legs are the clock hands and we're talking about work and all that. And he turned around and basically said, you can do the best you can do with the time that you've got. Hmm. And that's, that's the obligation. Because if you, if you live and die 24 hours a day because of some client, you, you're not serving the client. You're actually violating your ethics. You can't be the best practitioner if you are emotionally too imbalanced mm -hmm. to make the good decisions. Lawyers very often serve as the emotional uh, shield. Like when I went through my divorce, my lawyer's job, and it's someone that I deeply trust and love, he's a, he's a great man, um, and he knows that I'm an emotional guy, and that's about as emotional as you get. Yeah. Um, he, he would turn around and be like, no, Josh, my job's to take these emotions out and help you make the decisions. Yeah, because, well, especially marriage, it's 99% yeah. emotion. There's no well, but, uh, but it's the same spectrum as, as criminal. Man, let's talk about you going to prison. On <laughs> one hand, we go to trial, and we do awesome. You walk out. Yeah. But guess what? Here's the facts. Here's how trial works. And man, come on, let's be blunt. It, it, none, none, none of it's fair. Not nothing's fair. Fairs no. are for you know horses and the, the trick dogs and prizes. 
Yeah, because the, no bottom, the bottom line is everywhere. If you have a lot of money, you can get a good lawyer. If you don't, you can't. Well, even a good lawyer, because you've got arbitrariness involved in it. But, you know, you, you, you get um, involved in this process, and you are, are put in a variety of forced choice positions where you don't want to make a choice. You're being bullied up because the other side's trying to screw you. It's not like they're – they're saying no. We're not. No, they're the other side. <laughs> no matter, <laughs> no matter how good a job you do, the other side's going to come in and try to bust it all. Yeah, <laughs> like, don't expect them to be like, "Oh man, you won." Let's just no, dude. That ain't the way that it works. Especially if you know them and they respect you, they almost give you, you know, a, a more up and down hard time because. Just Josh, I'm sorry. That has to be so disheartening if you go out there and you do an hour of an opening argument or whatever, and you just knock it out of the park, and then the other lawyer comes in and buries you. Well, dude, uh, you, you learn from the losses. The losses, 100 times more valuable than the wins. Mm, the so wins, <laughs> man, gone in a heartbeat. You, you remember them. And yeah. you're like, man, that was awesome. We walked that guy. And that's the client that disappears from your life. Yeah. It's the client where you worked your butt off and you probably lost and you should have won, but you did. That's the one that sticks with you forever. Or when you've done the, man, they wanted to give you 100, we got them down to 10. Yeah. Kind of you know, ratioing it. Because that's a lot of criminal work isn't you're innocent. A lot of criminal work is you ain't guilty of what they're saying. Yeah. Well, and that's, and that's, that's hard. Well, that's what our, our man Franz always says. He's like, not guilty doesn't mean innocent. He goes, we're just here yeah. to kind of figure out what the ultimate bottom line is. And, you know, a lot of times whoever has the better lawyer or the more experienced lawyer, usually you would hope comes out on top. Yeah, well, and generally what you're buying, when the, the more expensive lawyers have more experience, more time, you know, in court hopefully more and better personal connections because a, a case is holistic. It, it, there's not just one part that makes a lawyer good. Uh, a lawyer has to be good in a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that's really what you're, you're hoping to acquire with the more you spend on a lawyer and, and a lot of access and really time. Um, but you can get amazing results from lesser lawyers as well. Don't, don't yeah. question that for a second. Because uh, they're hungry, the, right? Well, not just that. It, it, lawyers carry baggage. I show up in court versus somebody else, prosecutor, if they know it, it's a different thing. It's why some lawyers avoid TV. It's why I'm very careful with some of the TV and, and media and stuff that I do because that can bite you real real bad. Um, it, whenever you saw those guys 20 years ago, I'm the best DUI lawyer in the area, and I'm the DUI king, and I wrote the book, and then I wrote the book, by the way, download my book, and it'll ruin your life if you don't pay me a bunch of money right now. So that's awesome, and those guys made a ton of money, tons. Yeah. But they also showed up in prosecutor's offices where they had mugs that were, I beat so-and-so. Yeah. Because Josh, man, I'll take any case for $99. There is a city here in the metro area that with municipal courts deal primarily with traffic with the most serious stuff being DUI and uh, sex batteries and domestic violence. Yeah, yeah. And so, But they're more relaxed than our formal state, superior, obviously federal court. So when you would pre-try cases at this courtroom, you would walk out the little side door 
And there was this little meeting area, standing area with the offices for probation and the prosecutor and then the judge down the hall. And they had a mm-hmm. bulletin board next to the water cooler. And it was called the wall of shame. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the wall of shame because if you were a lawyer whose tasteless, crappy advertising bothered somebody at court, they, they put would it go up. up on the wall. Of yeah. Shame. <laughs> and you did not want to go negotiate with a prosecutor when she's staring at your crappy jail mail flyer that you sent yeah. to everybody who got arrested. Jail saying, mail. <laughs> I've, I've beaten every prosecutor in 100 miles. I yeah. guarantee you just, like, man, you, you're just going to get you. Oh, yeah. jail mail is a regular way that people used to market for, for cases. We really? used to do it. Yeah, no, you buy a mailing list, everybody's been arrested. Well, yeah, I guess, because... Yeah, public knowledge, and then you buy it, and then we would only send a letter. Um, some of the more aggressive marketers, and marketing has a disgusting like a, role. Send a t-shirt, or like a... Oh, you know, Full-blown DVDs, four-color <laughs> folders, tchotchke, and you're like, man, you're spending $30 on a mailing, but they're charging $4,000, $5,000 more per case. Yeah, well, especially, uh, I would so imagine, you, it, it gets more expensive on your second or third uh, arrest. So oh. Make, jail mail seems smart. By the time you get into multiple repeat DUIs, the fee's insane. Yeah. Because, you know, and a lot of people, when they ask me about fees and how much stuff costs, um, first of all, it's how much experience does the lawyer have and how much time do you think it's going to take? That's, yeah. a, that's a big one. Uh, and the lawyer's reputation and, and, and all that stuff. Uh, but then also you're talking about how much did that lawyer cost or, or spend to acquire clients? And when you see in marketing, that's expensive. It's outrageously expensive. Well, yeah, like um, some of the, the billboards are two or three thousand dollars a day. You oh, have to be doing ooh. well, right? <laughs> Way up for that. In well, a major you know metro area, you can spend five, ten, fifteen thousand. There are firms that you wouldn't believe have the budgets that they do. Um, and, and that's just the start of how criminal lawyers generate clients, which is a, an unfortunately dubious part of the industry. Uh, not not yeah, we, anything compared to the way they do with personal injury cases. That's downright mafia tactics. We, um, but, we, but we have one up here. Or? It's the Diamond and Diamond Law Firm. They yeah. are on every single bus. They're on every single bench. They're on every single billboard. Like you, you if you walk anywhere downtown, if you walk a half a block, you'll see two or three advertisements. Like I, uh, well, I, I just, if it's personal injury, remember, it, 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 there's kind of two general parts of personal injury. There's what we politely call just bump and run, missed, minor impact soft tissue. We're talking about cases with minimal medical damages. Medical damages are, <laughs> yeah, are basically your Cairo medical bills, and, and we're talking smaller style cases. And that's a volume business only. None of those are going to try. It's not worth it to go try. Everybody's going to cut their bills to make all everything go together and squeeze out the nickel. Mm-hmm. Because the the goal of the firms that do that is to do a hundred little bump and run missed cases, and then generate the one really good big money death case, brain injury case, multiple kids case, something like that. That case, depending on how much insurance is there, because if there's a minimal policy, it's still worthless. But if there's say a big uh, corporate policy, Walmart. or if there's yeah. yeah, if there's a big personal umbrella. Then you're talking about multiple millions of dollars potentially 
that case gets sent to a more, let's just call it specialized trial attorney. Right. Or the trial lawyers that, that really knock them out of the park for the multi-millions. And at that point, you've got to have it set up because if it's going to be a bad faith or whatever. But the value of that one case buys adver- all that advertising for years. I would imagine, yeah. Like, I, I, I've made a lot of money in a very short period of time when you settle one of those big cases. It's the, it's the years and years getting into the position where you can have that case, handle that case well, and get the right result. That's where a lot of that outrageous paycheck comes from. Because you're right. A lot of personal injury paychecks look ridiculous, and we'll see how the market reacts to that over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, criminals, thankfully, totally different. Criminal is almost 99.9% of the time going to be a flat fee or an hourly fee. Yeah. Well, you know what? You, you bring up a, a great thing because uh, I, I, a lot of people beat around the bush about money, especially lawyers, because, they, they, you know, if, you, if you've if you done something like, you know, sorry, my question would be, how would you figure out what to charge if like a, a Lori Vallow Daybell or um, a Rex Hoyerman or uh, let's say Jody Arias lands on your desk? Well, so you've thrown in the variable of exposure Mm -hmm. and there are lawyers that would value that very high there are lawyers that would value that very low a perfect example of that is uh is uh mr finley here in uh georgia who is the Mm -hmm. billion dollar lawyer who represents donald trump and represents cardi b and made the microphone allegations from this week disappear Hence why her lawyer is a Jew is trending on Twitter, which I think is <laughs> and Brian is a, a very, very smart, excellent, top-shelf lawyer. He doesn't care about exposure very much because he has more exposure than he could ever imagine. He doesn't well, even it, need it, it couldn't hurt. I mean, your name is literally well, going to be in a thousand newspapers twice a day. That's totally different from a practitioner who's only practiced for 10 minutes and has their one-time shot because – their client did something that got picked up by a news service and is going to turn into a national story. The mm-hmm. younger, less exposed lawyer, man, kill for that. The one mention. Um, there's there's a very small number of lawyers that really have that that name cachet that a huge case brings. So when a huge case comes in, that's part of the equation. So let me let me approach it two ways. That kind of charge, major charge, like a murder or you know a major complex criminal charge, um, most of the time it's going to be a multi-stage flat fee, or it's going to be an hourly retainer that gets refreshed. So, uh, so then, like I, I'm talking about a case like in a small town that's not going to be on TV. Like let's just say the yeah. you know I, I love you're, using Jody Arias because I, I told you before when I was talking about talking with Kirk Nurmi. And I know he doesn't want to talk about Aries. That's all anybody no, wants to talk about. He's stuck, though, and he will. And he's, it's, it's regretful, but, man, it's the lot he got cat, which is, again, goes into the equation. Being, being thrust into the public spotlight is not always the greatest thing in the universe. No, again, because, like, you brought up a great point a few minutes ago when you're like, whether you want to be on TV or not. I wouldn't want to be because, again, what you were just saying when – you're doing this uh, uh, trial lawyer stuff and you're practicing and you're working on techniques and stuff. As soon as you put that on TV, it's like a magician. I don't think you can use it anymore. Wow, that's kind of the neat thing. You, 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 have, you, you have to do it to understand it. Mm. And to do it requires a substantial dedication of time with a group of people who are dedicated. Like the psychodrama process involves group building in a small group 
and then learning sociodramatic tools and then practicing it by watching it. And that's a multi-day process. Uh, when well, we I can't imagine. It, oh, when we teach it to lawyers on a long-form basis, very often under a three-week <coughs> uh, trial skills program, uh, we spend the entire first week just doing psychodrama and because it's that powerful. Uh, but it's core to our understanding of, of how we do it. Now, that's only a very small subset of lawyers. We're not talking, most lawyers have never even heard about it. It's yeah. Ones have. Um, because it's it's powerful stuff. So it's not something that we worry about that. Unlike the tips and tricks groups, where there's a lot of those, and a lot of the tips and tricks are great. You can go Josh, to train. Like, what color or, tie am I wearing? I'm not well, wearing a tie. I'm not wearing a tie. Yeah, dude, yeah. <laughs> so, there are some very rote and easy to learn, memorize, and then exploit conversational things that just work. And man, sometimes they get packaged as this is how the pickup artists work. There was a whole little mini universe of pickup artists. All it is is the same psychological school of interaction. If you read some of the best business development books, a lot of it's the same stuff about authenticity, vulnerability, building a connection with an individual, because you really have to open up that connection with an individual if there's going to be an exchange of anything other than the hot air. Um, well, and it, money. It, like, it, if you're going to yeah, hire a lawyer and you're, let's say, guilty or not guilty, for six or $700 an hour, you're going to have to have a connection because... Well, oh, you, you, you better. You'd be surprised who doesn't, and you'd be surprised that there are some very, very good lawyers that do not get super emotional, and I'm not crapping all over them. They've got their practice. I've got mine. Um, but then you've got clients that their defense is uh, is their emotional and availability. And one of our struggles in discovering the story and telling the client how we're going to defend, how we're going to figure out how to defend their case is, is yeah. working through the emotional uh, shields, especially traumatized people. Like, the, we, yeah, we, no, I, I, again, you bring up a great point because if you didn't like believe in your client or work with your client or have the whole story, get to know each other and all that sort of thing, I can't imagine that you can actually give a good defense because oh, yeah. sound, it's, you know, like I was saying to you earlier before we started recording, when you listen to you guys on TV, because you're usually delivering somewhat bad news, but it's not that you do it with humor. You do it with kind of a heart where it's kind of entertaining, where you probably do the same thing I would imagine in court because if you're listening to the news and you're listening to like a program like NPR where they're, oh hi, uh, where just uh, there was a bus crash today and seventeen. News calling, like, man. It's yeah. useless because you, 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 there's there's no connection. There's no there's no heart to it. Well, and, and that's and it all gets back to why we're doing this is to do it in front of a jury and it's to connect with jurors and it's the same with listeners. And it's any listener. It's the judge. It's the jury. It's the an audience. And it's why some of the stuff translates so well to, to broadcast. Um, you have to open up and be willing to be open and vulnerable because caring is contagious. And you can't look away from caring. And, and that caring has to be authentic because everybody can sniff manufactured fake caring. Without question. If you don't care and you try to pretend to care, dude. Stinks to high heaven. Everybody yeah. can see that. A hundred percent. You know, I brought up a thing. Somebody had a meltdown in court last year, and I tweeted something about it to you and Judge. 
And you and it was something about raising the voice, and you were like, "I do it all the time." They said, "If you're not really, if you're in there, not raising your voice." Like I was going to ask you for if you had any great examples of just kind of filibustering, but if yeah. you're not raising your voice, you're not trying. <laughs> yeah. A volume is unbelievably powerful. Of course, as is pacing, as is pausing, and I'm a fast talking guy. I consciously have to slow down when I'm doing presentation stuff because you realize the empty pause between words is where people think. Well done. It's also <laughs> where it encodes on their brain. Yeah. If I say 50 words in a few seconds, you're not going to have enough time to actually listen to them all. They're all going to run together and you're going to get what I'm saying, but it's not going to sink in. Whereas if I slow down and tell you that the boat was red. <laughs> was a in 30 minutes, I can ask you, what color is the boat? And you're going to go, red, like the barn. It was red. You drilled it into my head. <laughs> and, and it's figuring out how to do it. But yeah. here's the thing. You and I have never spoken before 36 minutes ago. Like, we've never had phone right. conversations. I wanted to make sure that I was open, vulnerable, honest, and you're getting the real me because I know that for you to get your best product, which is a podcast that people want to listen to, they want to listen to open, real conversations. Yeah, of course. And so I went into this with my heart and my availability and my care open because I really want your podcast to kick ass. Why? Because it's Thank good you. for kind of everybody. Uh, Rising Tide Sports All Boats, people. Y'all people out there in the world that are always talking about you, 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 and what they did. Dude, rising tide floats all boats. That's what, if, you know what, what I was saying people, earlier, and I, I wasn't just doing it to blow smoke up your ass, was that you guys, there's certain people like Matthew Mangino, uh, Michael, I, uh, a lot uh, of the guys yeah. that you work with, they have, there's just a gravitas. There, there's an entertaining aspect of it when you're delivering bad news to not make it seem like it's the end of the world because... I, I would say 60 or 70% of the time when you're listening to news, it's just sad, you know, and I, and I know ultimately it is sad, but there is a way to inform the public where, you know, you, you don't want to go bury your head in the sand after you turn the TV yeah. off. You need some compassion and some empathy. And guess what? Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to bad people. I can't control a lot of that. Yeah, I can control what I can control, and I can try to really understand why things happen. And that's a lot of that presentation and working with clients. You also practice that muscle a lot doing criminal defense. It is not easy to have the, the let's go to prison talk the first many times. Yeah. I don't think that ever permanently disappears. In fact, I hope it doesn't because then it's not special. It's just like going to court. People are like, how are you so calm? I'm like, I'm, I may look calm. But there is a cloud of butterflies in the stomach. And if that cloud ever dies, I need to stop going to court. Well, you, you know what the other thing is, too? I mean, I, 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 I drink from time to time. I wouldn't say I'm an alcoholic. But I, I, it's the classic, what you were saying earlier when you had a drinking problem, is all these butterflies are a stress or are you doing the case well? Alcohol can temporarily fix a lot oh. of that. So. Oh, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Marijuana, lots of drugs. Lot, yeah. and, and listen, I'm, I'm not a sober preacher by any means. If you come hang out with me, I've lived a period life in many ways. Yeah. I don't drink anymore because <laughs> I'm really bad at it. Yeah. Uh, if I drink, I, well, actually, I should say, 
I'm really awesome, man, because I'm going to drink everything. And I'm yeah. never going to stop. And then everybody's out of booze. And I'm like, where's more? So I, I had to. I would be super dead if I wasn't. But I, I lived a very adventuresome life for many years. And, and I'm not some sort of teetotaling, you know, lecturer. Um, but it does dull some of that horridness. And it's part of, I believe, the evolution of all lawyers who are bad news deliverers how they're going to eventually get into a position where they can have that conversation. It gets a lot easier in time. It gets a lot easier when you understand that it's more common, that people understand more. We tend to underestimate how mature and understanding our clients are at the beginning of our career. We're mm -hmm. so terrified to tell them any bad news because we feel like it's a failure. When really, uh, the first time a client's like, that's it? <laughs> like, dude, you're going to yeah, man, it's just two years. You're like, want to hang yourself because you failed. This guy's like, dude, two years is a is a joke, man. I'll be out, and that's easy. I can do that standing on my head. <laughs> yeah, dude, relative suffering is relative is another thing, and stress is relative. I have a, the the joke is the suburban housewife client that can do 24 hours and I, it will take more emotional time to deal with her 24 hours in, you know, the drunk tank. Yeah. Than people that go to prison for five or 10 or 15 years. Yeah. That's because suffering's relative and it's what you're used to and it's what you're exposed to and it's what you've processed and, and really come to yourself as to what's going to happen with your case. Um, and, and it's also helps teach you, about guilt and innocence and responsibility and what clients really want with your case because you have a responsibility to zealously represent them in a in a criminal aspect. Yeah. But you also have the role of counselor. And it is, uh, I approach my entire client. Um, and, and that's really important because that's how you kind of care about it. And that's really the secret to it is you got to care for people. Even if you don't like them. And I got a couple clients. That yeah. Do not like <laughs> Like, I've got you know, clients and, that and I've, I would, I'm legitimately concerned about them for many reasons. And that, and that's going back to what I was saying before when, like, uh, if, if a, a Lori Vallow or a Jody Arias case lands on your desk, like, aside from the money, I mean, like, okay, so you're, you know, when you were younger, how, how are these cases distributed, for example? Like, if there's a really difficult murder or a really difficult, like, a case where somebody's looking at 10 or 15 years, how would yeah. something like that eventually land on your desk? So the vast majority of criminal cases in the United States are handled by public defense agencies because criminal cases are expensive. I hang around with much pretty wealthy people. I'm I know sure. a lot of them that use the public defender especially in federal court. The moment you get in federal court, the public defense is, is dominates. But state, state, most state courts. So you would, you would learn to try those cases by working as a public defender. Um, and then in private practice, you are in a marketplace with other very smart, very exposed uh, practitioners that all have their own particular thing. So you think about what kind of client it is. And you want to have the right client as much as the right client wants the right lawyer. Right. I don't want some kinds of clients because I don't work well with them. And bluntly, I don't, I don't have time for that garbage. So I, I, you fire clients, the more successful you are. A customer that's obviously guilty and crazy? No. Uh, we also have a go-away price. Every lawyer worth a damn 
has a go-away price. When someone walks in and spills the most outrageous story, and you're like, well, and that's going to be a million dollars. And the worst part's when they're like, all right, let's go. I got it. I'll write you a check. And you're getting paid some ridiculous, and you're like, oh, God, no, now i got to deal with it. There are cases that you regret. And the more you are exposed, the more where you, you, you learn to pick those and, and kick those. Yeah. Um, there's plenty of younger lawyers that need to cut their teeth with a problem client. And there's plenty of problem clients. Yeah. Um, but when you're figuring out how much stuff costs, this is what I, I really tell people. And this is the way that most fees in, in my firm are set up. We charge a two-stage fee, a pretrial fee and a trial fee. Right. And the pretrial fee, oh, look, we're gonna, we, we start talking money and the other justice kitty shows up. Yeah. Um, the pre-trial fee is where really a, a most of the quote-unquote work is going to take place. Yeah. And that's because that's where I'm going to do discovery and motions and spend time with you and discover what the story really is and meet with the officers and talk with the, with the prosecutor and build that relationship over the length of the case. Hopefully it's a linear prosecution and not chopped up. But the vast majority of cases in my personal practice get to a juncture after the right amount of time where it's time to, you know, pick them and go home or you're going to trial. Now, and, at the at the end of the pretrial portion of it, do you know if you can win or not? No. You, really? you, have, you have a much better educated idea of what's going to happen, but there's never a guarantee. Your lawyer ever guarantees you anything. Uh, uh, take them up on it and see the shit out. But um, the jury pretrial is when you have your discovery and all that. So you've pretty much yeah. seen everything that's on the table. Like, uh, you've and then seen what you expect the state's case to look like. Right. And we will, we will have done some motions and we will have kind of figured out, all right, this is what's coming and this is what's going out. But at some point, state's going to be making the offer and the negotiations aren't really going to go any further. And there are trigger points in criminal work. You know, is it a time served case? Is it a diversion case? Is it a misdemeanor down from a felony case? Is it a probated case? Is it a, a behavior incentive date case? Is it first offender or Alfred plea? Or are we talking about the ones that really get the most time, which are cases that involve prison time? Mm -hmm. In Georgia and most other states, prosecutors have developed a term uh, or a tactic called stacking, where they will arrest you and charge you with multiple overlapping crimes that create the exposure to a huge amount of punishment, knowing damn well they can't win all that. But technically, you're facing this outrageous sentence. It's like when you were and younger, you wanted a $20 and said, raise in your allowance, so you'd ask for uh, 10 and get 15. <laughs> and, and, and you go back and forth, and they know where the triggers are. And they know that if the state starts out at serving three years in, in prison and eventually gets to straight probation. Yeah. 99.9% <laughs> of people are going to take straight probation over risking one minute of prison. Absolutely. And, and it's hard for me to be like, no, come on, let's risk it. It's just prison. <laughs> I can get you I'm nothing. <laughs> no, I'm still going to be fat and bald on TV. <laughs> but move. we might win. Yeah. I'm going to give you nothing because I want to be on TV and I want to yeah. get a mug. <laughs> so, and really, that's why we see only trials so often on the huge cases. Every one of these cases that we see, uh, the most famous ones, are, are basically no-offer cases. Yeah. You are either going, if you plead guilty, you're gone. 
you going. Yeah. 25 years um, or you're going home. There's no way in between. Yeah, like it, it's not, you're not getting, no one's offering three years, 20 do three. No. Nobody's going to see that on TV anyway. <laughs> no. And, it's, and, and, you know, so it's what people <laughs> care the most about are, are these really the, the most egregious cases. That's really one of my critiques about true crime. Unfortunately, we focus on the most the outrageous, salacious things, which make up the smallest number of crimes. Yeah, the vast majority of crimes are super not as exciting as this. Like, your average burglary is a junkie. Yeah, it's really 250 bucks. Yeah, it's a homeless guy. Uh, yeah. Your average battery, uh, drunk fights, or intimate partner slap and tickle where the cops make a preventative arrest before it gets worse. Yeah. And then nip it in the bud and it's a giant mess because state's got to be really careful with those. And it's a tremendous amount of work. Um, the, the, the murders of children really are rare. Yeah. Um, we it's, just it's hard to, it's hard to look at. Yeah. Sorry, just to go back to slap and tickle for a second. Yeah, you, you mentioned I think you were with Esther Panich about. Uh, ah, yeah, Esther and I used to be public defenders together years ago. I was just going to say you guys worked in the night court system. Did you know? Uh, well, so it it wasn't really night court, but it was the closest thing Georgia had to it. Because and that, that, and that was my question: Was it like it was on TV with like prostitutes and public urination? Yeah, yeah. No, there's definitely. <laughs> Yeah. What it was, it was uh, Esther and I both worked at the time for um, the public defense agency that was in charge of the lowest rung of crimes in Fulton County, not city okay. of Atlanta, but Fulton County, which is the county Atlanta's in. And we regularly worked. If we weren't in a trial court, we were working the daily courts. And the daily courts are first appearance, magistrate all purpose, and state all purpose. All purpose means that um, everything fits on there. And why are these people still in jail a lot of the time? Like, is that like off- a fast food window of justice, sort of? Just kind of. Oh yeah, yeah. Is you've just been arrested within forty-eight hours, you get to go in front of a judge. Seventy-two rarely, but almost always forty-eight hours. And it's you're meeting with a lawyer from it. Hey, Derek, what's your name? I'm Josh. <laughs> I'm your lawyer today. I'm reading your paperwork right here that I just got thirty seconds ago. You got arrested because you were at that bar down on Peachtree Street, got drunk, didn't pay. Apparently, they criminally trespassed you and you wouldn't leave. And while arrest, getting arrested, you jerked your hands away from the officer, so he charged you with obstruction. Yeah. I see here that <laughs> you have 47 prior arrests. We're going to ask for a signature bond so you can get out of jail and just sign your butt. The judge is not going to give it to you. I'm just telling you, but I'm still going to ask. You, in my opinion, are never going to get a bond that's not a cash bond that you can't make. Um, so... You can either deal with your case this way. Or, and so a lot of this, you're dealing with frequent flyers. Josh, I almost and, want to break the law so I can hire you. I'm telling you right now. That, was, it, that, that was impressive. <laughs> oh, I could do that. I could do, do that. And you have to, that's how you meet everybody. That's how you get so comfortable with it. Because really, I've seen, I've read thousands of police reports. So is my partner, Doug. So is everybody that we worked with. Yeah, We all have this context. And it really was night courtish because at the time, I'm just going to pick Esther and I, we would show up at the jail at eight o'clock on Saturday morning. Yeah. And we, you know, you're not dressed up all fancy. It's jail court. You know, you're kind of rolling in. Everybody else is kind of rolling in. The judges were all magistrate judges that we all know because we work for them. And they used to have our jobs. Right. Because that's how you get that magistrate court job. All the deputies 
these are people that you work with every day. You'll fight with deputies. Deputies the bomb. I love yeah. my deputies. Deputies, I got friends that are deputies. Um, so it's this very comfortable collegial because it's an administrative court. Your job is to bring people in, and by the time they're done with their hearing, they've got the direction they're going in, and most of it doesn't have a lot. There's a discretionary choice that the judge is going to make, but most of the rest of the fittings are there. What kind of record does the person have? What does the police board say? Yeah. Is there a victim or not? But you would read literally all the prostitution, all the fighting, and it was one of the most enjoyable parts of my I loved it. It was super enjoyable. That's um, awesome. <laughs> the store, dude, I can tell you, I've represented the seven-year-old African-American grandmother who, depending on whose story you believe, um, her version was she dropped the vacuum wand after giving her husband a plate after he got home from work. Right. His version was after he found out his plate was cold and was sitting on the couch, he complained about it, and she attacked him. She in beat him to death with it? <laughs> no, no, no. If you have a vacuum wand and are a man getting home from a hot, sweaty day of work... <laughs> You might have taken off all of your clothes and sat naked on the couch to eat your plate when it was cold, and you complained she might have attacked you in the who And we got to have that here. Like, do you know how fun it is to go to work one day and be like, I'm going to cross-examine people about whether his hoo-hoo got actually sucked into the vacuum. Yeah. Like, I've had a case where we've had to discuss so, uh, you intercepted him? Yes. And uh, where was he? Well, he had just left all points of sale and turned left on uh, Peachtree Street. All right. So what happened then? Well, I approached him and I asked him uh, if he had purchased anything at the store. And he said no. Uh, and then I noted that he had uh, four packs of ribs stuck down the front of his pants. Yeah. So I put him in custody and we went back inside the store and I processed him for a rib. Great. So what did he have? He had four uh Sealed packs of ribs. Okay. Um, and what did you do with the ribs? We put them back on the shelf. Okay. So just to make sure, you just told this whole court, you took four packs of crotch ribs off a homeless guy and put it back in the cooler. Right? Awesome. That's cool. No, no, no. I just wanted to get that down. Dude, the vice cases where they would go with the marked bills to get the naked dancers to bend over a certain amount. You would get to cross-examine these officers on getting exotic dances. Right. And the officers would just melt because yeah. it was like, and you could have made the bus there, but you didn't. Yeah. Why you can't you stand up? Right? <laughs> you kept on getting dances even though you could have made the arrest. Yeah. Now, did you need to bring the second dancer over for the dual dance? Yeah. Because you only could have made the arrest, right? Josh, they should have taken an hour. You were there for four days. Yeah, I did. And, and you, you don't get experiences like this in other jobs. I can't imagine. Uh, really, you have to see it. And it, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, the, the, you can't write fiction better than this kind of real life. No, I'm telling you, man. You've definitely, I opened my eyes today. I know I don't want to keep you too, too much longer. I just did, I did want to rattle off a few questions from some of your people. Yeah, dude, absolutely, man. So we all know it's Adrian. Oh, Yes. Yes, the, the, so. our, our Scottish super fan. Our Scottish, absolutely. I've never seen. I'm gonna go visit her. Like we talked about, where my ancestors are from. She's an absolute hoot. She's amazing. 
Love I know. And even if you wanted to like do um, like any uh, little uh, gifts and stuff like that, like when I was picking on Borghart one time, and then uh, with the crown, and she just she had it done in like an hour, and like it's oh, just, like, she's the best. amazing. I spoke. She is. She really is that sweet. Like yeah. she really. One of the things I really love about Twitter, and I, if you see me on Twitter, you see that I I really actually do interact with people all, all the, the time. time. So I'm a divorced dad of a twelve year old. If I'm with the twelve year old. I'm not really on social media and all that stuff and not working as much and I really like to dad. Yeah. However, I can be a 47-year-old bachelor. I Facebook at 2 o'clock in the morning. I love my Twitter people. So Twitter's hilarious. <laughs> love it. <laughs> so her question is, um, what? Uh, she has two questions. One of them is, uh, what trial are you uh, most looking forward to covering this year? Um, Hewerman is going to be really fascinating. And I really look forward to it. I think Hewerman is going to be a really cool exercise in how investigations into these kind of mega cases that are that are just fantastically fascinating work. And I'm really glad because so far the law enforcement seems to be doing a good job. Excellent. Unfortunately, that's kind of tragedy chasing. Uh, yeah. And, and, and it's not a whodunit kind of, now, man. I'm, really looks like he was pretty deeply involved in some awful stuff. So... I, I don't have that. Uh, Chad Daybell is obviously going to be huge with my question remaining. What's Lori going to do to affect the trial? Yeah. She, she has a very limited number of pathways in her future, but if she really is the chief number one prophet of Mr. Prophet Chad, it makes total sense for her to fall on her sword and destroy his trial so that he doesn't get the death penalty. I agree. And i strongly interested in seeing that. Um, the Trump stuff and the political stuff, I know we don't talk a lot about that because it upsets so many people. And uh, I'd like an opportunity to talk about some of that. And I'm doing some more news. Like I'm appearing on The Grio next week. I'm appearing on CBS next week. Uh, I do some other stuff that I don't push out quite like the court TV. Um, I, I think that the Trump process is one of the most important things that's ever happened in my life. And we're, it's going to be determinative as how well the country it does. Are we resilient? Can our you institutions handle this? I agree, but I, I don't think you can get across that information in a couple of hours. I think there, there is so many layers to it where if you were to do something or to have a show or something like that, like if you were just to sit down and try to explain the whole Trump thing from soup to nuts, yeah, it would take a 40-hour week. You might be able to sort of dive into it, and that's why you guys yeah. are probably better off not doing it because you could just do drips and drabs. It's too much. Well, and that's just the, the public front end that is approachable by non-professionals is one very huge, unbelievably complicated, massive story. Within that story is the, the lawyer perspective on it. Right. which is going to be a little bit different. And that's before we get into the policy wonk perspectives and all that, because lawyers are not just concerned because of who's involved, but really this has been the biggest existential threat to the system. Our Supreme Court is suffering in ways that it has not suffered in decades and decades and decades. Congress and the Senate and the presidency are all in the garbage. And practicing law, first and foremost, is fidelity to this system we've developed. 
And one of the things we've discovered is not everybody believes in this system. And a lot of people are disenfranchised from the system. And a lot of people are convinced the system's broken. It's going to remain broken. It will never work. There's that's bad. Let's just say Donald walks into your office tomorrow. Do you take that case? Um, so I very specifically <laughs> declined to work on some political stuff because normally I do do some political work. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that I would 100% say no to everybody. I'm sure there's something that would intrigue me. Right now, I don't have a lot of interest in representing a politician, even though I might do some consulting, but I'll figure that out. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want that case. Um, it, he's it would never a very difficult client, and there's, it's, just, it's like owning problems. Yeah. You want to buy problems, or you want to buy something that's going to be smooth. <laughs> Hi, I'm John. Like, if, if it didn't have all the other accoutrements, the case itself, intellectually, I find fascinating. I've said a million times Donald Trump needs to completely stop arguing the law as his defense, mm -hmm. which is what the, the most of the response yesterday and today has been is how this indictment is a violation of free speech and that no. You're, you're talking law against U.S. attorneys. You can't. Yeah. U.S. attorneys, they, they, run the law. They, they know better than you. You're guilty if you believe in the way that they apply the law. And read that indictment. It's a masterpiece. It's unbelievable. <laughs> um, it, it's a gorgeous charging document that anybody that reads it with good faith, man, Pretty convincing stuff, if it's true. Yeah. <laughs> His defense to that kind of indictment needs to be putting the entire system on trial with the theory that it is absolutely impossible for any person, any citizen, even up to the president, to fight the federal government when it wants to crush you. Yeah. And it, and it removes it from some of the politics, and you're appealing at that point to 12 people. And if you can win 12 people, or if you win three people, you, you walk it. And I think that's eminently possible. Yeah, I, I think so too. The appropriate presentation of, ladies and gentlemen, they said they were going to get them. They did. You'll never find a jury. You'll never find a jury. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, you know, I don't want to say that I'm the world's greatest. But, man, give me the first 12 in the box. Bet I can make them fight about Trump. Yeah. <laughs> Give me two seconds. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's a regular joke with the criminal civil universe. Civil universe, you go to these train, man, you got to bring the 12 people together and make them fall in love. And they're going to sing Kumbaya. And then you're going to be like, it's $7 trillion. And they're going to be like, yeah, money. Yeah. yeah. Criminal, I do not want Kumbaya. I do yeah. not want 12 people to agree on anything. If 12 people are agreeing and it's my client, Generally a bad sign. <laughs> it's going the but other way. I want, I want one person back there to be like, this is all shit. I want at least one person back there to be like, I don't like the prosecutor for some petty reason. I want somebody on the jury potentially that's childish and juvenile, thinks it's not so. You do not want agreement in a no. jury when you're defending something. <coughs> Sorry, the other question from It's Adrian was, um, or Adrienne, was uh, what is it like working with Judge and Jack Rice? I, so a lot of people at Court TV for what I started, and I brought on a ton of guests at the time. I had this big roll of 
I did not know Judge very well other than like literally in passing. Ultimate, hey, I know who that is. And Jack I'd never met before, even though it turns out we know a number of people nationally together from the bit. It's one of the most fun things I've ever done. And I've been practicing law since 2002. And I didn't expect it. I didn't ask for it. It just happened. And it's kind of one of those things where if it's all going that great, don't mess with it. Uh, Jack, just to be clear, Jack and I get paid nothing. Not, none of, this is not how you make your living. Jack has loved legal media for years and media in general, besides being CIA, besides working for government, besides being a criminal defense. He's done media because it's what he really likes to do. Um, I started off on Core TV as a fill-in. Hey, this is kind of fun because I'm going to be on TV. And it's obviously morphed into something that I really do enjoy. And yeah. the big question now is what's next? And I can't tell you. It's been a busy summer. We got lots of ideas. But we, we like not getting paid to some degree because then they can't tell you what to do. And there's a lot of freedom but, and, in not. But if you're spending three hours a day on television, you got to make some money. <laughs> well, yeah, but and here's the thing: can I charge a little bit more money, and I don't have to spend as much money on marketing? Yes. And in fact, if you're listening to this and you're hurt or injured, please come. <laughs> I'm here. I'm real. That's how I make a living. Um, and you're you're not going to teach. me. Um, and I've got a partner that works very diligently on bluntly the stuff that makes us more money. Our civil practice makes way more than my criminal practice. Um, criminal practice is a self-limiting practice in some ways. Um, so working with Jack and Ashley, it's it magic. It totally kids yeah, me. We just, it is magic. And it's not any slight to man. I love Michael Ayala. He, I can sit and talk with Michael. At oh my god, he has seen our Ted. Like I can't get enough of. I love the people I get to work with the court team, but there's just something special about. Jack, me, and Ashley together. There really play. is. Um, and same with the other guy. Like, Franz and I, I've known Franz since 2010, 2011. Like, we were friends. He was asking me for a year. Man, one of these days you got to get me on court TV. I was like, yeah, one of these days we'll get you. And next thing you know, he's blowing it up because he's awesome. He actually he actually told me a story because I told you he lives on his phone. So, no. so oh, yeah. I, I sent him a message when I was trying to get some questions for you. And he was talking about that when he first showed up, Michael was the first person he met. And Michael was like, are you here to take my job? Oh my God. <laughs> because, Fra because Franz was like that. His question was actually a good one. Uh, he yeah. said, how has being a father changed you as a lawyer? Um, it's the addition of perspective. And I've actually been asked this a couple of times. So, haha, ha, Franz. Um, so, Franz. <laughs> yeah. Everybody has perspective. You need to work a lot if you're trying to understand and advocate on why other people's perspectives are the way they are. And that's it has to do with listening to people and figuring out why people make the decisions that they do. Because look, most things are really understandable if you understand why that decision got made. Right. When you see something illogical, there's probably a reason it's like that. You just need to figure out why, and it's that perspective. So I... I do a lot of reversing roles now with the new perspective of, and I've got a 12 year old and it's a girl. Yeah. And, and the girl part opens my eyes more than almost even having the kid stuff. I was raised in a male dominated universe. The only girl was my mom. Right. Um, very different and very educational and downright 
frightening to some degree to be well, a dad. I was going to say, you have, you have nine more frightening years ahead of you. Uh, yeah. And, man, as a as a progressive, empowered dad guy, it's like, all right, yeah, I've represented some women that have jobs that many people would not have been proud of years ago, but damn it, they are. Right. I'm all about freedom and empowerment and yes. choice. And, and, and then, and you're like, but I'm also a dad. And the world is mean and evil and awful and eats good people and destroys them and takes them in. But I see Trump. <laughs> Man, I just finished a horrific recidivist sex offender case where the victim, uh, who was also a horrific criminal, um, was basically a young woman who had made every bad choice in life on purpose continuously. Um, and it was mind-blowing to see the world she lived in at yeah. the age of 18. Unbelievable. And, and it was fright. And my heart broke way more for her, the complainant victim, allegedly, than yeah. the actual client, who I also felt terrible for. He was getting hosed by a system that was, had destroyed him his entire life and was terribly unfair. Um, but it was like, all right, if you've got these two traumatically broken people, what what are we, what are we doing? And it's true. But um, definitely, I love being a dad. I never wanted kids. It's the greatest thing ever. I would have another kid uh, if I had the right woman in my life. Uh, I'm never going to turn that uh, that down. Like I, I now understand awesome. why people are like, I ah, was 62. Man, let's have another kid. Like, <laughs> We, we, we do come across that a lot where, like, the, the woman has to go through, like, to the end of the world and spend, you know, two $300,000 to have a kid when they're in their early to mid-40s. And the father is, yeah. like, 65, 60, because they're like, I don't give a shit, you know. We'll, yeah. get, a nanny. Yeah. we'll get a nanny. We'll get a nanny. insurance policy. It's all going to be fine. They're going to get some good time with me. Let's go. Well, and <laughs> so I, I now am of the age where a lot of my contemporaries have gone through different evolutions in their lives and marriages and there are people that are together and there are people that are apart. I have a couple of good friends that in the second attempt at family um, have built something that they is very different from their first attempt and, and they love it. And, and I'm not middle-aged. I ain't old yet. Uh, I, you know. I, I, I got your back, Josh. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's Anyways, I'm going to let you go because I know I kept you way too long. But Bye. Time is in the, in the chair. We'll do this again. If we didn't love you more on Court TV, from what we know already, I love you even more now. This was awesome. I wanted to thank you yeah. so much for your time. Absolutely. I love what you guys are doing, if there's ever anything. And please, anybody, you can always find me on what we used to call Twitter. Um, Whatever I, it is, I, man. I need to get a website going again one of these days. Like, that's been one of the weird things. I, I just really like this stuff, so I kind of watch other stuff go. And it's, it's fun. So, man, Derek, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Anybody, go follow him or go look at my Twitter and go follow at Lawyership because I'm telling you, the guy's on fire all the time. Again, Josh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Derek. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye.